coming to get you, Barbara. George Romero, Night of the Living Dead. Welcome to a special episode of Books in the Freezer. Today we're taking a deep dive into one of the most enduring creations in the horror genre, whether you call them walkers, shamblers, rotters, or just good old-fashioned zombies. We are here with special guest Dr. Arnold Blumberg to discuss the evolution of zombies through the ages. This episode of Books in the Freezer is brought to you by Audible. This podcast wouldn't be possible without audiobooks. So if you want some spooky stories told by some familiar voices, try Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, read by Dexter's Michael C. Hall, or The Dead Zone, read by James Franco, or podcast favorite Joe Hill's Nosferatu, read by Kate Mulgrew. For a free audiobook and 30-day trial, go to audibletrial.com slash books in the freezer. Happy listening. Aside from being the author of Zombie Mania, 80 Movies to Die For, and the recently published Journey of the Living Dead, a tribute to 50 Years of Flesh Eaters, Dr. Blumberg, or as he's known online, the Doctor of the Dead, is an educator, a podcaster, and even a publisher for his own small press, ATB Publishing. He also credits himself as not only an historian of zombies and pop culture, but also the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So we're excited to welcome Dr. Blumberg today to talk about the near 100-year presence of zombies in film. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Sure, of course. So let's start with a little bit about yourself. Uh, So your small press, ATB Publishing, could you tell us a little bit about that, how you found yourself in the role of publisher, and maybe what kind of work you and your team publish for ATB? Sure. Well, I've been in publishing professionally in one way or another pretty much since I started working. Um, Books and magazines and reading and literature, that entire aspect of things, that entire part of the experience of media, even growing up with comics and science fiction and all that, has always been a big part of my life. And I just love even the tactile experience of reading a book, uh, the collecting of books, um, and so I worked for a publisher for many years. I was editor of the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide, and we did a lot of other guides to comics and collectibles. And from that, I started working in other magazines and other publications, freelancing. But it was always kind of a dream to eventually be able to control things myself and publish the kind of books that I would want to have on my shelf, that I would want to read. And starting in 2012, we put out the first official ATB title, Uh, outside in and it uh, grew out of the fact that I'm very steeped in the Doctor Who fan community professionally and personally and a good friend of mine and a fellow author and strangely enough zombie expert Dr. Robert Smith put together a proposal for a series of guidebooks not really guidebooks essay collections that would look 
in very new and eclectic and fresh ways at all of the fictional worlds that we love, Doctor Who, Star Trek, most recently Buffy. So we've been doing outside-in review books, and basically each book, there's a different writer for every single episode or story of a given show. So for instance, the classic Doctor Who volume that started that series off has 160 writers represented. It has some of the most amazing collection of diverse voices through all of this uh, fandom and many fandoms beyond. And since then, we've published books on the history of Doctor Who fandom in America, Red, White, and Who, um, a book on comics and superhero storytelling called Storytelling Engines that is also an essay collection by one author, and then My Own Journey of the Living Dead, which was an attempt to basically collate everything I've been doing professionally in uh, zombie commentary and writing for the last uh, 10, 12 years or so. And so the, the idea of ATB is we're doing pop culture-themed nonfiction that explores all of the fictional worlds that we all love. Pop culture and nonfiction, that's not a very uh, common genre of of nonfiction. Well, there are a lot of... I mean, there are a lot of places that do things like that. I mean... Um, I, sur- I grew up at a time, for instance, where we were pre-internet, so one of the things that I grew up with was if I loved a television show, I went and looked for the guidebook. Uh, that's yeah. probably why that's in my head right now. And so, for instance, you know, grow up at Twilight Zone, it's like, oh, I want to read everything there is to know about Twilight Zone. Well, there wasn't a website, so I sought out Mark Zickery's book, The Twilight Zone Companion, and that was everything you needed to know about Twilight Zone. And Star Trek had books, and Doctor Who had books. In fact, Doctor and Star Trek are two of the most documented shows in history. But then, even in the era of the web, one of the things that struck me was, I still love books. And they're still one of the best machines in the world for storing and distributing data. And how wonderful it would still be to be able to share new perspectives and insight into all these things in book form. One of the things we've kind of dedicated ourselves to as well is that although we're never going to say never to any possibilities, we are very dedicated to doing print books. We don't do ebook editions of anything. On the one hand, there are very real financial and business reasons why that's just not particularly useful for us at this point. But for another, uh, there seems to be a lot of uh, recent re-embracing of the idea of print and the experience of sitting down with a book. And I just love the idea that each thing we put out is an artifact in and of itself and something you can hold and explore all these ideas in that form. So we're really dedicated to that. I am holding a copy of Journey of the Living Dead here, and I do. I love the way it's laid out. I love being able to check the pictures, and I just have so many passages highlighted in here, and it does make it for a better experience to be able to flip through it like that, for sure. That's wonderful. I love hearing that you highlighted stuff. That's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) I do all the book design and layout, too, which is also something I've always loved. I think there's nothing more relaxing to me than than designing books. So that was one of the other reasons why I was really driven to do this as something on a regular basis. Ebooks are convenient, but they'll they'll never replace the tactile feel of the book in your hand. Yeah, I mean, they, they certainly can't. And I totally understand that they are convenient. And there are people who are very, very adamant that that's the way they want to consume media. And like I said, mm-hmm. we're not against the possibility. There are some pretty strong reasons why when you're a small independent press it's just not particularly viable unless you can find a good way to do it and right now we just don't have that way especially in the realm of nonfiction too i find nonfiction specifically is very yes. very print dedicated than yes more so than ebook that is absolutely true and with fiction it is so much easier to push out a lot of material 
uh, digitally and to be able to make a go of it that way. And that's awesome for the people that can. And um, you know, if we ever figure out a way to make that work for us, we'll do that too. Sounds good. Earlier, you mentioned Journey of the Living Dead. And in that book, you do mention, uh, briefly talk about a course you created for the University of Baltimore called Media Genres, Zombies in Popular Media. How exactly did that come about? Well, um, I had done my first book on the zombie genre, Zombie Mania, uh, back around 2006. And I wrote that with a very good friend of mine, Andy Hirschberger. And we had that published by a British uh, publisher at the time that I was connected with through the Doctor Who world. And around that time... It became clearer and clearer that it was a viable opportunity for me to keep discussing and exploring all the things that I was starting to see in the world of zombies. And it was coming along at a time where we were in the middle of a massive resurgence in the genre post 9-11. And then I came up, actually someone else who helped me with the idea a little bit initially and said, oh, maybe you do this. And I came up with the idea of pitching a semester of a film course to University of Baltimore, which I had done my master's and my doctorate there, and I knew people there. And they were just starting a pop culture minor at University of Baltimore and linking some of their media and communication stuff. So I pitched them the idea of here's how you could do an entire semester on zombies. And within about 15, 20 minutes, I had the director of the program completely on board. And it's like, oh, okay, I see what you're doing. And uh, we launched that in the fall of 2010, which was just cosmic timing since that was the same fall that the walking dead television show debuted and in many respects that was the moment where things really ramped up in a significant way in terms of mainstream media exposure for the genre and from there on you know i started eventually a short while later i was doing a podcast i was the doctor of the dead and it became a brand in a way that i never expected but but has been a fun way to to keep uh, an eye on the genre and see how it's evolving every year goes by so i did have a question about the course have you noticed over the years that you've taught it if there's like a specific film that students end up surprisingly responding to well this may seem a little simple and uh and convenient but Night of the Living Dead is usually the one. Really? Yeah, the original Night of the Living Dead is usually the one that gets the most energetic and um, profound conversations going of the entire semester. There are movies they get excited about. Certainly the closer... We do the course chronologically. Mm -hmm. So I start them at the very beginning. We look at the underpinnings of the whole thing. Basically, the book that you're holding, too, During the Living Dead, is also my attempt to give everybody what many people have asked me for over the years, which is they wish they could take the course. And on one level, it's like, well, here's everything that I would say and then some in book form. But I always have to handle the fact that college students, they they will often come to me later and say that I've opened their eyes, which is wonderful. But at least initially, many of them will say with no irony, no attempt to be joking that they don't watch black and white movies, that they don't connect with them at all. And it makes me sad to hear that. But I figure, well, all right, you have to watch these, though. And some of them then really get connected with it. And in the case of Night of the Living Dead, obviously, that's one of the factors here is that it's black and white. Uh, when they get past that, when they get past some of the stilted acting, the fact that it's it very much feels 50 years ago in, in many ways, particularly to younger viewers. They get invested in it really quickly. They gasp and are in shock at all the right moments. And the conversations afterward are usually very profound and very much centered on Barbara and Ben in particular uh, and all the dynamics in play, gender, race, all the things that we're trying to explore. 
So it just shows 50 years later that movie still works and it can still work on young viewers who've never seen it before. They just have to get past some of their preconceptions. And that still winds up being probably the best day of the semester. Oh, wow. There's a real testament to how significant, I guess, Romero's series is, even now, like you said, 50 years later, that it this is the one that people gravitate towards. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it just shows that for all the things, like I said, for all the things that even a viewer that's never experienced it before, and is coming at it from, you know, 2019 now perspective, uh, if you just allow yourself to get emotionally invested in it even a little bit, the fact that that movie can still work on you shows that they captured something in that. Maybe beyond anybody's particular plan at the time. Yeah. It's one of those lightning in a bottle kind of things, but they did. Yeah, I know I know. Romero's on record saying that he didn't mean to make any kind of a statement, but I, I think the ending definitely gives so much to talk about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that's one of the things I often joke about is that some of the pattern that I use in in other places is that when you look at some of the interviews he did, like, you know, within a short space of time after Night of Living Dead, they'll ask him, did you plan any of this? And he's like, no, I didn't plan any of that. And like five years later, it's like, did you, you know, trying to make a statement about Ben? He's like, well, maybe we kind of. (laughs) And by the time it's like 10 years later and they're making Dawn, he's like, well, yeah, we were trying to do. So it's like the. The idea, too, is is like if people keep telling you you're brilliant over and over again, you have to start owning it. And I feel like he did that. Um, but I think it's true that, you know, there's there's very little intent. Um, I've subsequently discovered just in working on this book how much more uh, Dwayne Jones was conscious of what they were doing in a way that maybe some of the other people in the movie weren't. But um, But apart from that, you know, intent or otherwise... It, it captures so much that's profound even today. Sadly, it's still meaningful today. So between your books and your podcast, I don't think anyone would dispute your credentials in terms of being an authority on zombies. So the real question is, why zombies? What is it about them that inspired them to be somewhat of a life ambition to study and discuss? Well, um, that's a good question. I never quite have uh, a really definitive answer for that. I mean, I, I like a lot of different things. I'm I'm always exploring things related to Doctor Who and Star Trek and certainly Marvel Comics and those movies and so many other things in pop culture and the zombie thing has sort of uh, oddly enough taken on a life of its own Um, but I guess one of the things that came up when we were working on the first book on Zombie Mania and I very much feel that During the Living Dead is like the, the evolution of some of what was done with Zombie Mania was that it was also a genre that at a certain point in time was it was possible to catalog it and to look at it in a more comprehensive way, maybe in a way that I didn't feel was quite as easy to accomplish with some of the other monsters in our pop culture pantheon, like the the vampire, the werewolf, the all of these characters that are steeped in uh, history and folklore and mythology and there's so much material and at the time when we were looking at the zombie genre particularly film in zombie mania it was like well you know there are certain surges but we can mark the moment it begins in 1932 and then we can actually get our heads around all of it and see what it means and then the other side of that is that once you start exploring what it means, I found it fascinating that of all the monsters that we consider popular and interesting, mm-hmm. the zombie is the closest to us. It's the closest to your friends, your family, you yourself. It's the most easily identifiable creature that is just sort of a 
carnival mirror reflection of a human being. And mm -hmm. so it's the best way to explore human nature. And that's not to say that all these other monsters don't have merit and things they can teach us, but um, I just think the zombie, one of the reasons why it stands the test of time is how potent that is. And the thing with, like, say, a vampire or a werewolf is generally in, in their respective mediums, whether it's film or book or, or regardless, um, they are the character themselves. They are an entity amongst themselves. A zombie, there's no, like, really famous zombies. Zombies themselves are more of, like, as you said, it's kind of like a reflection of us as a society in general. That's a good point. I mean, very often when you're dealing with storytelling with those other characters, that's right, you're very often dealing with a story in which those characters are the central point, whether they are your point of view or they are the you know the major antagonist usually singly you know i mean there's and of course all these things are generalizations i mean yeah yeah, yeah. you can look at like 30 days a night and then vampires are you know and and there are a lot of things that blur the lines so for instance one of the things i go into in in journey is how often the zombie genre really features creatures that you could argue are equally vampire and zombie, and we usually call them zompires, and they have a lot of the same traits. Um, so there's a blurring of the line. But you're right, and so there are also stories where the zombie's a point of view character, or there is a single character, like Warm Bodies is a wonderful example yeah, of that. Yeah. But for the most part, it's a genre that says instead, we're going to tell you a story about people, and then we drop those people into a world in which humanity and nature and whatever else is turned against them. And they are the landscape. They're the background for this exploration of human nature. And that's another reason why they're, they're interesting. And uh, one of the things I think we talked about before we started talking for the show is the idea of world building. And the idea that zombie stories often do that. They put you into a complete often post-apocalyptic world and there's something strangely compelling about that too and i think in zomb like i feel like they did this in the walking dead a lot which i know this is back to your point about zombies being people like us but people face with the decision that their loved one is no longer their loved one but it looks like their loved one and so they have to make like a big decision has always been very effective for me <laughs> like every yeah. time they did that on the walking dead it was like no <laughs> you you watched the show since the beginning Yes. From the very beginning. And then that's one of the things I always found fascinating, too, and they've talked about it, is how they backed off on some of the darker implications of that early yeah. on. Because, like, there's the whole thing about, um, I don't know, she's called Summer, but the, the, the little girl, the first one in Days Gone By with her teddy bear and and uh, Morgan's wife. And, and there were a lot of indications in the early days of the show that it was like, oh, are they remembering things? And they were very, uh, and Kirkman's been on record as saying they very calculatedly backed off of that because they thought, well, they didn't want to explore that part because then the question is, every time you shoot one of them in the head, are you killing someone who's trapped inside a shell? And they didn't want to deal with that. But it's an interesting idea, and of course, other stories do that. You know, explore that idea. Uh, so, your, so your book is a densely packed tome, citing dozens of zombie films over the last five decades, and their impact to zombie lore in general. So, what kind of challenges did you face in compiling and organizing all that information into a, a single book? Oh well, like I was saying earlier, in one respect, Journey of the Living Dead is like the culmination of a good 12 years or so of all the things I've been doing. So my idea 
it, it evolved from something very different, but then when it became this and I realized what I was going to do was a book that was sort of my love letter to the genre, my summation of everything I've been lecturing about or podcasting about or writing about all these years about what this stuff means and why the zombie has become such a quintessential part of our culture. I realized I was going to do it chronologically. We were going to go from the very beginning and beforehand, look at some of the real world history that informs these creatures in pop culture, bring it all the way up to the present. Um, then it became a project of revisiting a lot of things that I thought I knew well. Um, since it was the 50th anniversary year of Night of the Living Dead, the structure that suddenly came to make the most sense to me was to do the timeline, but to do the timeline from the angle that everything prior to 1968 was informing the creation of Night of the Living Dead, and everything after 1968 was inspired by or part of the legacy of Night of the Living Dead. So everything turned on that one film. So I knew I wanted to go much more in-depth into Night of the Living Dead than almost anything else, and to a lesser extent, the other two in Romero's first trilogy. Um, and then it was I was just collecting everything I've ever done before. Parts of this came from Zombie Mania. Parts of it came from a piece I wrote about uh, The Walking Dead and EC Comics that I'd done years earlier, and tons and tons of new research. Um, and I was constantly uncovering things that I was double-checking and triple-checking to make sure that no one had ever said before. So one of the things that was really exciting me was that in this book I was discovering things that I have never seen reported or discussed in other uh, zombie resources. Um, and then right to the last minute I was trying to throw in things about Night that was coming up as I was revisiting that film again and again. And I continue to use that movie. Right now I'm teaching first-year composition courses at University of Maryland, and I use that movie every year, so I also get to see that through fresh eyes through these students every single year. And um, it was quite a process. And then the last few months were very intense, where it was like, there's a printing deadline, I got to make that printing deadline. And ultimately, every book becomes that. Every book winds up being a, a dash to the finish line, no matter how much time you give yourself. So this was way more than just the Zombie Mania sequel. As you say, it's more like the evolution of what you did before. Yes. Yeah, because the original, because Zombie Mania is a guidebook. Zombie Mania, I mean, it has a lot of this history, but the structure of Zombie Mania was we picked 80 movies to give full chapters and basically did like the kind of breakdown plot synopsis, trivia, behind the scenes, our review, and then we cataloged in the back an index of about, at the time, 570 other movies, everything we could verify. And this is totally different. This is a chronological narrative. You're reading from, you know, all the way through. Um, and then I also tried to throw in some things that would be helpful to other people that might want to teach it because there's the educational angle. So I even threw in some stuff that um, other teachers might find useful, like questions for further reading or writing and uh, the kind of stuff that might spark other discussion. That was the impression I got from, from reading Journey of the Living Dead is that it reads really well just as a nonfiction book, but there's a, I can see that aspect of it that it's like a textbook. I, I would figure this would be like the textbook for your course. Yeah, exactly. And um, more so for the idea that other people could actually find some use in that too. Because another thing that used to come up over the years is people would say, really, you did a course in this? And then the inevitable thing, if they were an educator themselves, would be, could I see your syllabus? Can you explain <laughs> to me how you... 
you know. And of course, there's a there's a double edged sword that because it's like I'm not a full time uh, faculty member where I teach, so my intellectual property is my you know, livelihood. So right. I didn't want to just, and well, no, I can't just distribute my syllabus. I'm not sitting, you know, safely in an office. I could say, yeah, here. <laughs> but then I thought, you know, it might be nice to have something in some form that could serve in that way, but do it in a way that I could shape and design. And that was one of the reasons why I did the book that way. So the book obviously focuses heavily on Night of the Living Dead and the rest of the series. And in there, you mentioned being a little bit of a Barbara apologist. So why do you think she gets a bad rap in the film? And why do you think we aren't giving her enough credit? Well, I became that way because of my students, because over the years, um, one of the things that, and, and you know, there's a lot of stuff you rely on, you lecture about the stuff over and over again. I've also built up like certain regular jokes I use all the time, kind of patter that, you know, gets comfortable. And for a little while, it became easy to just make jokes about Barbara being catatonic through all night of living dead and like, oh, she's useless. And, you know, and students used to say that first. It's like they would say, oh, I hate Barbara. She's terrible. She doesn't do anything. Then I saw an interesting shift happen where over the years, rather than join in on the joke and like laugh along, there would be pushback from students to other students because there would always be these, these conversations going on in the, in the room where they would say, she just saw her brother killed in front of her. Don't you think you would also be catatonic for a while? <laughs> you know, all this. And we started to like look at her differently and realize, you know, okay, she, she comes across as very useless and so lacking in agency through most of the movie. And there are some things about that character that remain problematic or at the very least, you know, aggravating to some people. But then at another level, she's pretty realistic. She's someone who experiences an absolutely insane thing that has no explanation. And, uh, and so a lot of people started to gravitate toward her instead of away from her. And so I realized, okay, let's take a look then about why, Barbara might be more interesting. And one of the things that some students started coming up with was she was a zombie parallel. Oh, interesting. That she demonstrates a lot of the same behavior and uh, reactions that the ghouls do. For one thing, she's fascinated by the music box like a little child or an animal. She's tracing the doilies on the sofa. Again, it's a very childlike thing and very like simple-minded, like there's not much going on in there. And then one of the weirdest things that really struck me one of the last times I watched it was when Helen sits down and introduces herself to her. She strikes a match and Barbara is just fixated on the fire with what looks almost like fear and Helen notices and puts the match out and it's like we've already been told that the ghouls are reacting with horror to the fire so there's a lot of stuff about barbara that feels like oh is this are the ghouls what we become if we lose everything if we you know go down to the simplest part of ourselves so a lot of interesting stuff about barbara and i think too often uh she's dismissed yeah i can see that and that makes a lot of sense i mean she did see her brother get killed in front of her in yeah. just, like, the most insane way <laughs> yeah it's not the best day you know it's... it's supposed to be a chill day at a cemetery <laughs> i know yeah so she she deserves a little time to get herself together um in the book you talk about the uh, symmetry between the way that our society behaves uh, especially when it comes to media consumption and the behavior of zombies. Uh, does that mean, in a way, that we're already living in the zombie apocalypse? Well, that's certainly a favorite idea for a lot of people writing op-eds these days. So <laughs> I will at least say it, it makes for a wonderful little uh, current kind of parallel to talk about the fact that 
All you got to do is walk around out in the world today and everybody around you is walking around with their heads down staring at their phone. And of course, whether it's the silly thing of people, you know, being entertained by people hurting themselves, like, you know, viral videos of people like falling into a, a pool because they were looking at their phone while they're walking. But the fact of the matter is that's true. You go around and like what used to be people standing around in public in ways that at least left the possibility of engagement. Now everybody is completely consumed by their little screens. You stand in line at the grocery store, you're all looking at your phone. Nobody wants to talk to anybody anymore and everybody is enslaved to their device. So there is some pretty powerful and very unsubtle zombie-like connections now that make for a really great way to look at it. And it's just another example of how great this is as a metaphor. You can take this and map it to that very easily. And uh, we seem to constantly have things in our culture that pop up that way. Yeah, Stephen King uh, wrote a book, Cell. It's mm-hmm. kind of tackling that. And yeah, same thing. A tone comes through to like the cell signal, and then all of a sudden half the world is not zombie in the sense of virus, but like, you know, it's another different incarnation of right. of the creature. Yeah, absolutely. Still, still zombie story. So yeah. So of all the various types of zombies that you've taught, from like Haitian voodoo ones to George Romero to World War Z, what would you say is your favorite incarnation? So my favorite incarnation is probably just again. This may be kind of a boring answer, but if given a choice, like what do I want to sit down and watch that I want to enjoy? It's probably the typical post Romero esque shambling you know, reanimated corpse kind of zombie, the one that's slow. And and I say that also not to say that this is where I come down on that debate, because I think there are plenty of fast zombie stories that are fantastic. Just that if I had to choose one, that would be the one I would choose. I think it's the, the best possible version of exploring all these ideas through a zombie. But I've also enjoyed a lot of other different kinds, and I'm always particularly fascinated to see if someone has come up with something new which is why for instance like post 2010s when things like warm bodies and i zombies started to come along i've really enjoyed a lot of the stories that deal with ascension thinking even curable uh, zombie so it's like there's always new stuff to do but romero-esque shamblers is my first pick so now if you were if you were to be a character in a zombie film which <laughs> zombie would you like to be up against <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, those again. Especially those again? yeah, especially Night of the Living Dead, because there's nothing in Night of the Living Dead that really says it's the end of the world. They're, they have it pretty well under control to begin at the end of Night of the Living Dead. The apocalyptic stuff doesn't really kick in until dawn, so I would say that. The joke I always tell is that if you're in a zombie apocalypse, make sure you look around and see which one you're in, and if you're in Return of the Living Dead, you can just give up because there's no hope. <laughs> they're, they're the worst. I'm curious, how do your students, well... Do your students get excited about the more meta stuff like Zombieland, where the characters like very much know the rules and everything about the world that they're in? Zombieland is always popular. Um, it was it was relatively almost brand new when I first started teaching the course, and now it's gotten to the point where it's a movie that a lot of people grew up with. Like that's one of their childhood zombie movies now. And yeah, it makes um, me feel old. I, yeah, I was about to say that. <laughs> I feel so old right now. I, I've been feeling old for a long time. So <laughs> I know the feeling. Um, there's nothing worse than being a teacher and standing in front of a room and having all of your pop culture jokes fall completely flat and realizing that you're just you're just reading his dad joke one after the other now and nothing <laughs> is working. And it's like, yeah, I'm old. So that's the way it is. Um, 
but yeah, Zombieland is one of those. It, it everybody loves it. I've, I've rarely encountered somebody that doesn't. And I think part of it, but not all of it, not only is it recent and, and something that a lot of people experienced at just the right time in their lives right now, but it also has that, again, one of those perfect uh, uses of the metaphor because it's about gaming and turning the entire apocalypse into something that maps to gaming culture. And that whole finale in the amusement park is perfect. You know, they're, they're practically not even treating it seriously like they're serious stakes. They're just playing the game. And you got the rules, you know. So it's a it's a great one. Shaun of the Dead's another one that's a recent one everybody loves with good reason. Oh yeah. And then I think the Zombie Land sequel is slated to come out pretty soon too. Yes. Who knew that would ever happen? And uh I think it's gonna be what is it, practically uh like ten years to the day practically they're gonna be doing this. So with all four original cast members back and the same director and writers and uh it's very exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing what they have to do. But will Bill Murray come back? That's exactly what my husband said. And I'm like, no, I, he will not. I know. There shouldn't, <laughs> there shouldn't be any Bill Murray in this one, but who knows? So what would you attribute to the longevity of the zombie as a narrative device in the horror genre? I know we talked about, we touched upon it briefly, but why do you think we're still talking about them? I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier. I think it, at its simplest level, I mean, there are a lot of the things, whether in the book or anywhere else, that we could talk about in far more detail. But the simplest answer is that they're the best creature for exploring all these different things about human nature. And like we just spent some time talking about, look how easily we can slip into conversations about cell phone use or, you know, the game, playing video games and how no matter what you come up with in our culture, you can find a way to use them as a metaphor for that. And they're us. And it's it's one of the cliches of the genre itself that in many of these movies, you have a character that has to hit you over the head with the theme of we're them and they're us. But that is the simplest answer of why they work. And I think we've now reached a point where they've gone so mainstream in popularity that like many other things in pop culture right now, particularly genre stuff, science fiction, superheroes, horror, um, I think we've reached a point where they're just so familiar to people that there's probably not going to be a time where they go away completely. There will always be somebody telling zombie stories, and then every once in a while there'll probably be somebody who will come up with something new and interesting that, that goes beyond the predictable, and that'll keep it going. So now... Just to briefly touch on comics for a second, what are the chances you think we'll ever see a film adaptation of the Marvel Zombies story? Oh, well, they're... they're <laughs> that would be they're awesome. They're never going to do that while Disney's involved, <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Uh, okay, that's true. <laughs> I mean, that's the, you know, uh, uh, a zombie Spider-Man weeping, you know, about having killed and eaten Mary Jane, and, you know, that's that's not what the mouse does. Uh, so. That's so sad. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. It'll, ha- it'll have to be a fan production, you know, somebody on the side. While, uh, while zombies have always been a mainstay in the horror genre, as we discussed, uh, it seems there's been a kind of a mainstream boom lately in the late 2000s and going forward. Uh, what do you think may have caused that sudden surge in popularity? Well, that's one of the big things I talk about in the book, is that more generally horror and then certain other genres as well. Uh, you can easily map them, and I, I use a little roller coaster metaphor in the book, to you can map their popularity to periods in which we have surges of tension and strife. And if you just look at 
this country, like if you don't even think globally, just think about the United States, you can map all the surges in zombie popularity and horror popularity to those moments in our history, and there's a weird lull at the end of the 90s, and then 9-11 happens. And within a couple years after 9-11, between 2002 and 2004, 28 days later, the first Resident Evil movie, The Walking Dead comic starts, everything starts surging, and they're all running. Except for the Walking Dead comic. They're Romero-style, but the ones in the movies are fre frequently running and moving faster. The Dawn of the Dead remake, running. Um, and so we had that surge. The difference is that in the past, surges tend to be followed by a period of relative rest, or like, oh, well, they're popular still and they're around, but maybe not as much. But then, post 9-11, we had that surge. I'm working on Zombie Mania in 2006 and thinking, oh, I can write a book while we're experiencing this latest thing and then it'll go away for a while. Then after that, global financial meltdown happens. Yeah. Walking Dead yeah. television show debuts and, and shoots zombies into the mainstream. And then as the years go on, you know, I won't belabor the point, but we all know where we are right now. So <laughs> I don't yeah. see them going away anytime soon. Um and uh, so that's that's why. And and one of the other things I talk about frequently is how we use horror and we use zombies as a way of processing real-world fear by compartmentalizing it with fictional fear. You're worn down by your life, you know. Shutdown's happening. You don't have any money. You know, people are discriminating. All the, thing, all the horrible things that are happening in our life on a daily basis. You can go into the theater for two hours and watch the world end and come back out and the world's not over yet anyway and the point is you can leave some of that behind in the world of the zombies they compartmentalize that and we need that a hell of a lot right now so they've become mainstream and that's why they're so powerful and i guess it helps where they're like by nature zombies are just mindless can't be negotiated with just pure hunger and unrelenting kind of stress and pressure on on the characters is kind of like yeah you know what you see in your in your day-to-day -day life kind that's of right in fact that's very beautifully put something that seems completely mindless can't be negotiated with doesn't behave with any sense of logic or reason just wants what it wants doesn't care about anyone else lacks all empathy i can't imagine who i'm thinking about but i think i'm talking about <laughs> zombies so um of course so yeah there you go <laughs> oh man i don't think i ever noticed that you know post 2000s we did get the running zombies where they're a little bit yeah. more of a threat because i feel like you know it's one of those things like you look back on you're like well they're walking <laughs> like how big of a threat are they that's one of the things i've often pointed out i mean it, it's not the beginning of that there were mm -hmm. there are certainly running zombies in the 80s too and as i often point out you know even the cemetery ghoul at the beginning of night of the living dead is jogging along pretty fast for a little while so they didn't invent it but the fact that it came along in such a concentrated burst there right mm -hmm. at that time was like, we're not just telling stories about the end of the world and like these creatures. We're talking about just unstoppable juggernauts. They're just, just pure terror. And, um, and that has lingered all this time. And now we have all different permutations of it. But it very much is mainstream in a way that no one who was into this stuff years ago could have ever predicted. Yeah, I mean, up to that point, mainstream zombie, like, a lot of, say, non-horror fans wouldn't see them 
so much as a threat unless you really look into it because it's like why they're not that scary i mean i can just jog a little bit ahead of them and i'm good yeah yeah you get the dawn the original where they're like the the campy music and they're swinging around the the mall and it's just, it's it's funny to watch. Oh yeah, and it's probably that has one. Even though that is also a classic, that has one of my least favorite sequences with the <laughs> the pie fight, you know. Oh, yeah. But there's a great example of it, and I mean it, it has its role to play too. If you you know in terms of meaning, is the, you know they're just you know smacking them with pies. It's like how difficult is this, you know? Because really, like like I think you've even said maybe before we were recording, but um, is that it's not about the zombies, it's about the people and. The people yeah. are the real threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I I saw that a lot with The Walking Dead, where you they would move someplace new, and you would think they'd find relative safety, <laughs> but then they meet other bad people. <laughs> yeah, I mean the other problem with that too is that ultimately it's a very cyclical yeah that's kind of story, you know. Which is eventually why I stopped watching it. But many of us have that story <laughs> of when we stop watching. It's it's like you know, guess what? That whole thing where he said, "Hey, I want to tell the zombie story that never ends." Stories need an ending. <laughs> that's that's yeah. what happens. I've read a bunch of the comics, but I I stopped after the governor for the TV oh, show. Oh, wow, that's early. Yeah, but <laughs> you already by that point you'd already gone through everything morally, ethically, and structurally that that story has to tell you. All, all they have to do is that same set of beats again. And if someone enjoys that and wants to keep replaying that, fine. But it is just a cycle. It's like, oh, maybe this place will be safe. Nope. Off we go again. Another cycle. Yeah. I dropped out in Alexandria. I, I was permanently uh, wounded and incapable of continuing after Glenn. <sighs> and I knew that. I mean, I knew from the yeah. comic, but I, I have reasons. I went on to the my show too but what, i what do you mean glenn glenn's okay right <laughs> yeah Stefan, of course he's fine he's don't fine he's okay. fine okay. don't worry about it he, he was fine with maggie last time i, I was just they concerned about the fact that he was he, he looked like he hurt his foot in one episode i was concerned for oh him. oh i remember that yeah okay, see yeah, yeah. but he's okay <laughs> So lastly, with recent entries such as the French film The Night Eats the World and the recent musical holiday horror comedy Anna and the Apocalypse, where do you see zombie films heading in the future? Well, I think it's going to be a mix of the predictable and the innovative. And that's that may seem like way too safe an answer, but it's the best one I can offer because over the years, it's a, it's a question that usually comes up most of the time where people will say, you know, what what do you think the next big thing is? And my usual pat answer was to say, well, what are we going to be afraid of in five years? Because whatever that is, that'll be what the zombie is in five years. Um, but now, of course, we have a little of everything happening all the time. If you want Romero-style stuff, there's Walking Dead and probably a half dozen movies. If you want fast zombies, you can go over here and there's this. If you want comedy and music... There's usually something. It, it's almost like zombies are transcending being a genre and just being a motif that works in anything. And we're seeing representations of, well, what if we put a zombie into this and into this? So I really feel like the future is it's there's going to be a lot of predictable stuff. And if you're a fan particularly, you've probably seen it all and done it all and thought, I don't need 
the the latest version of a bunch of guys with a digicam who've decided they're going to tell the story of a bunch of people trapped in a house because we've seen that 4,000 times. You know, and, and that's another, by the way, that's another major pitfall of the genre is that unfortunately, for good and bad, it's probably the easiest thing that budding filmmakers can do is throw some blood on some old t-shirts and grab a camera or their iPhone and say, let's shoot a zombie movie this weekend. It's easy. You don't need a budget. You especially if, especially if you make a found footage film where you just do shaky cam. Oh my camp. god, there are too many of those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, but but on the other hand, it also means that if someone wants to get started or wants to do something like that, that's the the bar is really low. It's easy enough to get started on it and do their own version. But we don't all need to see it because we've seen all those stories. So then it becomes, well, what's going to be innovative and interesting? Anna and the Apocalypse looks innovative. Even something like The Night Eats the World looks like it takes some of those aspects of exploring a character and the stresses that come in with having the world collapse around you and from outside and looks at it in a more concentrated way. And it'll be those things that those of us that look at a lot of this stuff will keep gravitating to. And... Who knows, with Zombieland 2 coming up, we might also get another sort of big budget surge. I mean, they are also working on World War Z 2 still. Oh, I did hear that. Yeah, and World War Z, for all of its faults, and I I think there are quite a few, uh, was the biggest budgeted, biggest money-making zombie movie of all time. So, you know, World War Z 2 comes along. That'll probably inspire a lot of copycats there as well, and you know we'll see what comes of it. So are your issues with World War Z with the movie or with the book? Oh, with the movie. The, the book plane is, crash. The book is that's part of it. <laughs> that but was I my mean, issue with it. Yeah, the book is wonderful. I mean, the the book is a phenomenal piece of work. It's so <laughs> rigorously researched, and it's just filled with wonderful stuff. And the movie uh, is called World War Z. So it's I haven't read the book, so it's very different. It's extremely different. Yes. They, except for a couple minor bits, uh, they basically bought the rights to the title and threw the book in the trash. Yeah, in-name only adaptation. Yeah, uh. and uh, and the movie is a very very uh, problematic thing, but the book is an extraordinary piece of work. So, having not read it, you definitely should. It's even even not as a zombie fan. It's just uh, it's an incredible piece of work. A guy just researching extraordinary amounts of material, political and technical and all kind of things. Really, talk about world building. That book is one of the most definitive examples of world building and literature of that kind I've ever seen. And it's told more like in hindsight than like while it's actually happening too. Yes, it's like we've already gone past the era during which we were losing against the zombies. The, those days are over and this is a book about you know, someone traveling and collecting all the anecdotes of the veterans who live through all those things. So it's very episodic, but it's very global. And um, yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary piece of work. I would love to see an adaptation of that book done the way so many things are done now. You would have to do it now on like HBO or Showtime or maybe Netflix, and it would have to be a series because there's too much stuff in there. I mean, does it follow, I guess, like a narrative? Because I know it's called like the oral history, so I just kind of thought it was a bunch of interviews. Well, there's a there's a bit of a through line going on with the, but for the most part, though, it has a lot of very discrete sections where you leave characters. I mean, you 
you experience these brief stories. There's one about a downed pilot. There's one about what happened at Yonkers and uh, this, you know, bits and pieces. And the movie only touched briefly. Like, I, I, in fact, I think one of the only things I can remember is the movie references Korea mm-hmm. and uh, actually references something that is dealt with in the book. And it was one of the only times in the movie I was like, oh, hey, they, they actually <laughs> mentioned something from the book. <laughs> Neat. Well, I didn't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so are we um, ready to do chilling obsessions? Got one question. The early 2010, um, I came across a movie called Dead Snow. So I want your opinion on Nazi zombies because that oh. was a thing for a while. Well, yeah, and it still is. I mean, most recently, um, oh god, what is it? Um, I want to say Overlord, but I don't yes, think it that... is. It's Overlord. Is that it? Overlord? Yeah. Um, yeah, which is Nazi zombies, and it's one of the, it's one of the peculiar things of the genres. There's a subgenre of Nazi zombie movies, which go back almost to the very. I mean, it's one of the many threads you can follow through the book too. I definitely cover that. Um, yeah, going all the way back to almost the beginning of the genre, right around World War II itself. Some of the earliest zombie movies are Nazi zombie movies. Yeah, that that predates the word zombie, doesn't it? Like some of those some of those examples. When you go back to the beginning of zombie film, it starts in 32 with White Zombie, but then there's some stuff, one of them's Revenge of the Zombies, and they have a lot of movies where Nazi scientists are trying to play with life and death and creating, you know, slaves for an army, and then you flash forward to the 70s and 80s, and there's a ton of them uh, from Italy and Spain, and uh, Zombie Lake is really crazy one and uh, shockwaves is a good example and then go to dead snow and it's back again and now overlord it's back again and i guess it's just the 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 easiest thing to say about it is just uh there are a few places throughout history where you can actually point to some actual human beings and say they are as close to actual evil as you could possibly get so to take that idea and merge it with the fictional creature is to create something so completely horrifying and loathsome that uh, it can't help but be entertaining, which is why they've done <laughs> yeah. Nazi zombie movies, and we'll certainly be seeing many more of them, I'm sure. I have an idea for one right now. Um, I'm just picturing a whole bunch of zombies like marching with red caps on. But <laughs> um, Anyway, anybody can take that and use it if they want. It's out there in the universe now. Yeah, it is. All right, now moving on to chilling obsessions. I recently got Shutter, and because I have a a PS4, I can't just get the Shutter app. I have to have it as like an add-on with another app. So I did it with VRV, which also gives me access to Nick Splat, which has like all the '90s like Nickelodeon things on there. So I've been watching a lot of like rocket power and are you afraid of the dark? And I forgot how much I loved. Are you afraid of the dark? I decided like I would watch one of them with my son who's four because I remembered them just being kind of like, I don't know, like little morality campfire stories. But of course the one I picked was like the crimson clown, which is like this little kid being haunted by a clown and he's like alone in his room and this clown keeps popping up everywhere. And I got to watch the trauma to my son happen just in real time. And it was like too late and he didn't sleep for a week. So not a great parenting move. Uh. (laughs) 
Wait, you started with the Crimson Cloud? I didn't remember! Or arguably it was the best possible parenting <laughs> move. It, it depends on how you look at it. I don't remember. It was like he was being a bad kid and he like lied to his mom. The elf on a shelf kind of thing. He, he shoplifted it. Yeah, he was shoplifted something and then he's like, there's a scene where he's lying in his bed and he's looking around for the clown and you can see it moving under the covers and moving up and I just looked over at my son and he was horrified oh. and I... <laughs> I immediately knew. Start off, start off with Mr. Sardo. That would be a good one. Anyone with him in it, it would be good for the kid. <laughs> but he kept asking me the next few days. He's like, Mom, I want to watch the scary show. So it, it did kind of blossom that like fear, but like there you go. interest in it. <laughs> Traumatize him early, folks. I was only introduced to Are You Afraid of the Dark in the last year or two. Really? My wife, my wife grew up with it and I didn't. And uh, she started showing me a few episodes and I really liked it. I, I thought it was, it reminded me, some of it reminded me a lot of Doctor Who. It had a certain quality to it. Uh, so I haven't seen many of them yet. I've only seen a few, but I'm looking forward to it. That's the, that was a staple of my childhood. Because of Canada. Just kidding. It's <laughs> Yes. It was the law. It's, it's federal <laughs> law. We need to watch at least an episode of Are Afraid of Dark a year. Like Alanis Morissette was in an episode like you guys have to watch it. <laughs> oh, God. Don't remind me. I love it. And I love. I still love that intro sequence. It still gets me. The earlier season one, yes. The later one, do they not change so much. it? They don't have like the the shutter and the attic with the dolls and the no. Match. It becomes like this bright, like there's a door in the sky with clouds and such, and the music is even more upbeat. Oh. You do know they're doing a movie now too, right? I did hear something about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, cautiously excited. There hasn't <laughs> been much about what it actually is going to be, but you know, yeah, they're we'll doing see. that and the um, the scary stories to tell in the dark stuff too yeah, yeah. that's right so it'll be a yeah. good year for throwbacks <laughs> since we are talking with the doctor of the dead i figured i would go with a zombie based chilling obsession oh excellent um, mine is going to be ah zombies it's a 2007 film uh it's a comedy i believe it also is called wasting away mm-hmm. premise of this movie is basically it, the characters essentially become zombies and don't realize it in black and white it's filmed like romero style night of the living dead they're shambling around not they're, ta- they're acting like actual zombies but then when it goes to color you see them talking amongst themselves as if they're normal people and they don't realize why people are reacting the way they are and everything's going on i'm not i don't think it predates Shaun of the dead uh no it's after it it's a little bit after yeah yeah but I, I remember even actually getting a screener from them when i was working on zombie mania they sent me a screener i think it still said wasted away yeah because now you see eyes ah zombies on all the releases i think i remember this being just absolutely hilarious and like i said i really love the throwback to to night of the living dead to romero style with the black and white and it's if you take each sequence like separately into their own movies are like completely different genres one straight up one's one's hilarious and they mix it together I, it's something that's really stuck with me since i watched it but. that's another that's a great example of one that does something very different and tries to like break open the usual routine i've never even heard of it no they have it's like this weird greenish like fluorescent green snow cone i think they eat that <laughs> gives them the virus <laughs> It's There's really... so many great reasons for zombies in some of these movies. There's a Hong Kong movie I always loved where it's it's uh, it's cola, it's bottles of Lucozade that turn them into zombies. It's like there's always something. Bad chicken nuggets, bad hamburgers. I think this is a good one for again non-zombie fans really to watch because you get the you get the Romero, but you also get the Shaun of the Dead. So I think it's a good blend. Cool. So have you enjoyed anything in horror media recently? Well, I'll stay away from zombies since that's predictable. Um, 
But it's interesting you mentioned Shudder because only a short while ago I also uh, got Shudder. And uh, around Halloween time and into the holidays, uh, we were exploring some of the stuff on Shudder and got into like a real run of watching a lot of 80s and 90s slasher movies that I had never seen before. It's like one of those weird areas where there's such a ton of stuff that you don't normally see. And... Um, just picking one at random that we also talked about on our show because we loved it so much was one called Blood Rage that, by the way, is also a perfect Thanksgiving horror movie if you want one to gather the family around the television and enjoy a lovely film about family and turkey. Then you can watch Blood Rage about two twin brothers. One is a homicidal psychopath, and uh, most of the movie is shot in the waiting room of a Florida motel. And it's just uh, it's a thing of beauty. So I'll I'll throw that one out there for anybody that wants to see a good 80s slasher that's shot for about five bucks in the Florida area. <laughs> I might have to check that out. I love slasher movies that take place around holidays. <laughs> I know. It just makes everything extra festive. Yeah. It's just really nice. Like, I recently yeah. watched, like, April Fool's Day. And I was like, this is fun. Oh, I haven't seen that in a while. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. We got, a, we got the disc. We haven't watched it yet. Uh, my wife picked up a couple... Anytime we see anything looks like something we might want to watch, we just grab it. And she got, I think it was Happy Birthday to Me. It's one of the ones she got recently. I haven't seen that in years I've either. I've seen that one. Yeah, and I also, another one I also want to track down again that I saw back in the old days of cable that I always loved. One of the Jamie Lee Curtis ones that doesn't pop up much. Oh, and it's Canadian too, is, uh, is Terror Train, which is fantastic. And if I remember right, I think it's set on New Year's. But uh, they're all trapped in the college group. They're all going on a train, and there's a party on the train, and uh, magician David Copperfield appears as himself, and, uh, and there's a masked killer. So what more could you ask for? Oh, cool. Hmm, I've, never, yeah, I've never even heard of that. There's a lot of horror. I, yeah. I have a couple blind spots. I've got to write a slasher book next is what i got to do. That's a... Uh, that'll be the next thing. Oh my God, there's so many of those. Because <laughs> I definitely remember like the '90s era, but before that, I'm, I know like the big franchises. Yeah, well, my wife is a huge fan, and I've discovered recently, justly so too, of uh, the Scream movies. I love <laughs> every one of them, yeah, every single one of them being superb in one way or another. Mm-hmm. They all maintain yeah. their quality. It's amazing, but. Um, yeah, so like that was part of it. We were exploring all that stuff. So That reminds me of a question I wanted to ask you. When can we expect the second part of your Scream retrospective on Doctor of the Dead? Oh, thank you for asking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the podcast is something that doesn't necessarily hold up too regularly when real life intervenes. And like right. once we hit past Halloween and into the other holidays, there was so much going on. Uh, we had done a f- an episode that was the beginning of our retrospective on the Scream movies. We've tried to expand the Doctor of the Dead podcast so it's not always 100% about zombies but right. about horror and other things so uh, we've been we've been saying to each other for quite a while now that we want to get back to the Scream retrospective so hopefully very soon we'll launch back into that and then uh, get things going again more regularly for 2019 but it should be soon I didn't get a chance to get I think the last half of the Halloween retrospective but I oh. do want to say that I really liked um, in the first one Natalie's theory about how Michael punishes bad uh, like guardians parentage kind of yeah that's that was well, an interesting theory 
I I agree. I love that whole idea she had. I have to. That's one of the things I have grown to enjoy the most about the podcasting is that pretty much every time she comes up with an interpretation or a theory about these things, it's not only insightful, but it usually shocks me as something I never thought about in all the years I've been watching these things. Like I've seen that movie four thousand times, I never thought about it from that perspective before. But uh, yeah, it's very very good idea and it makes you look at things in a new light so we just actually watched the new one again picked it up on blu-ray and watched the new halloween again and oh, how do you find that i mean it still holds up really well so awesome. still a fantastic sequel i haven't seen the original so i'm just gonna be quiet <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say i i'm slowly trying to expand steph's classic horror repertoire i should i think it's on shutter <laughs> Just think of all the stuff you have to look forward to. I know around Halloween time they had a whole bunch of them on there. Because so. I feel like the reason I was putting it off before was because I, I don't have cable and I only have streaming services. So it's one of those things where if it's not on Netflix or it's not on Hulu or on Amazon, I'm not going to watch it. And the original Halloween was never on any of those. But now I have Shudder and I should have no excuse. <laughs> so where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter all the time at Doctor of the Dead. Uh, they can find ATB Publishing itself, uh, you know, at ATB Publishing on Twitter, and atbpublishing.com is the website. We're a very small independent press. We do not really have, at this time, any widespread distribution or uh, stuff on Amazon, so the best place to find Journey and also to find any of our books about all these pop culture topics is right at the website and uh, keep up on Twitter and, and uh, Instagram. We also have ATV Publishing, too. And uh, my wife, Natalie, basically curates the entire Instagram feed and, and has really shaped uh, an identity I for it. I love that Instagram, and... by the way. I love all the Funko Pops. It's delightful. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that. She'll be happy to hear that, too. And uh, and we have a lot of fun ideas in the works for this year. If everything works out well, we will probably have a title coming out this year that should be of a lot of interest to horror movie fans. But um, it might involve uh, uh, someone who's had an extensive career in the industry and looking back at his life and career. But it's still very early days yet, so I haven't really said much about it. And we'll see what happens. Wow, exciting. Well, I'll be looking for that one. We'll be on the lookout. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. This was a lot of fun. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. So Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod or on Instagram at Books in the Freezer. You can send us an email at booksinthefreezer at gmail.com. Show notes for this episode and all previous episodes will be at booksinthefreezer.com. You can find us on Patreon as Books in the Freezer and a special thank you to all of our patrons. This show would not be possible without your help. But if you're looking for a free way to support the podcast, be sure to leave us a review on a podcast app like iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps people find us. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N. Or on Instagram at that's what she read. But that's with two A's. Or on YouTube at that's what she read. And you can find me on Twitter at InsomniReads. And on YouTube, just search the Indie Insomniac. So join us next time for Books in the Freezer. (laughs) 